Hello and welcome to the National Gallery of Ireland podcast, a series of programmes designed to take us beyond the gallery walls. My name is Sinead Rice and I'm the Head of Education at the Gallery. I have a varied background in art practice, history and education, but my first and my enduring love is photography. This podcast series is inspired by two temporary exhibitions of photography at the Gallery. Moment in Time, a legacy of photographs, works from the Bank of America collection, which presents iconic photographs from Henry Cartier-Bresson, Robert Frank, Dorothea Lange and many more. And our other exhibition, View of Ireland, Collecting Photography, which presents a selection of works from the gallery's growing photography collection in an Irish context, with works by national and international photographers, including Amelia Steen, Eamon Doyle and Inga Morath. Both exhibitions demonstrate the magic of this art form and include a myriad of techniques, processes and prints. In the second episode, I meet with David Davison and Edwin Davison, father and son of long-standing company Davison & Associates, specialists in photographic conservation. They share stories from their fascinating career, explain the magic of the pre-digital process and reveal some remarkable moments in the history of Irish photography. Okay, so David, Edwin, thank you so much for joining me here today for this podcast. So I guess one of the things that we'd really like to hear about first is photography in relation to your life, who you are and how you came to photography. David, would you maybe start? How did I come to photography? A happy accident. That's the that's the answer to it. I think I, a good many years ago now, in fact, in the latter 50s, I uh, was approached by a, a man I knew. I didn't really know what he was really doing in life, um, but he asked me if I would go in and help him because he'd heard that I was a keen amateur who developed film in the bedroom like so many others, made prints in the said bedroom, commandeered the bath and all of these <laughs> things that one does in or used to do before telephones started taking photographs. And so he thought I'd be of use to him because he was losing his colleague and he thought, well, he needed another body to help him out. It turned out that he was the managing director or had been the managing director of a very large photographic company that owned its own aeroplane and had 16 other photographers apart from the pilot photographer. So I... I was into what was the relic of this because the, the firm, for very interesting reasons, had closed down. He was still there. He, being the managing director, he kept the business going and he kept the aerial photography business and the commercial photography business go- going. And I went in to help him for two weeks while he got someone. Well, those two weeks turned out a bit long. In fact, I'm still working in the same business. (laughs) I was seriously infected. Well, I had got the initial infection, but the disease spread (laughs) when I got into the business of photography. Everything about it was exciting. And, of course, I was dealing in large formats, sort of thing. What does a large format mean? A very big negative, almost the size of a saucer. Okay. And so that would be... uh, the only size that we were allowed to use, which is a big change from my fiddly little roll film camera, uh, which wouldn't be allowed inside the building. So I gradually uh, learned there because uh, Walter Guyver, as he was, had been uh, a press man at one time in in London. And this is the man who owned the company. And this is the man who owned the company. And he he was 
a, a, a fascinating man. I don't know why he never went back to London. I know he was lured over by a very nice job here, but he didn't go back to London, and yet he had quite a reputation. He... He was a press man, which meant he photographed all sorts of things, but he was brilliant at photographing dogs. I wish I could have learned <laughs> that from him. A um, very niche skill. But, well, he, he had published a book on all the breeds of dog in existence at <laughs> one stage. So, anyhow, I learned things, but my interests were different to his. I was not very dogs. In, not dogs. Well, I like dogs, but I, <laughs> I wasn't... <laughs> He had a magical touch. I mean, he made wonderful portraits of dogs and the odd horse, too. But he, <laughs> but he, he had a, a very good commercial business he'd inherited. Uh, for instance, we had, con we had contracts with CIE and with, uh, with Borden and Mona. Okay. Now, if CIE would have work every week of the year. In those days, see, if you wanted a photograph taken, you got a professional. And they wanted this particular standard of photograph. So that brought me into all sorts of interesting places, photographing new installations, photographing new buses, or if they went in for new advertising or got mm -hmm. decided that the, the bus driver could have a, perhaps a, a radio. So you have to photograph the radio installation, something like that. This went on uh, all the time. And that broadened my interest. I had always had an interest in history and in buildings. And we had some nice architectural clients for whom we did both aerial photography and, uh, and uh, terrestrial. And I had some good fun in the air, in the air over the years. Uh, the aircraft I first flew in with Darby Kennedy it now, I think, still hangs in the Dublin airport from the roof uh, with two wings. And it had two engines. I didn't always fly with two engines. And did you fly yourself or there was a pilot oh, and then you were taking pilot, the photos? Yeah, the pilot took out the door. It was a sort of a 10-seater or something, this particular plane. Took out the door, put a plank across the middle of it. And um, when one got to the target and walked back, and stood on one's toes behind the, the behind this plank, which was the only thing between oneself and eternity, <laughs> and, uh, and just took pictures. One stood on the toes because one used the legs as a shock absorber because otherwise the shaking of the plane yeah. was too much. So I th what? we had a lot of those ex interesting experiences. What kind of camera would you have been using then when you were in that plane? In that plane. At that height? That was with a, that movement? <laughs> strange enough, that was a roll film camera. Okay. It took f film f uh, five inches wide and it was a, a Second World War surplus camera. They were everywhere, a thing called a K20, a brilliant camera made for taking pictures out of aeroplanes with a great clunk when the shutter went off so that you knew you'd actually taken the picture. Okay. Because with the roar of en engines, you wouldn't know with an ordinary camera whether it actually worked. And remember, you couldn't look at the back of it and see if there was an image on it. Yes. That you would find uh, the next day after you developed the film. And when you came back to Earth after this fabulous experience of photographing from the sky and photographing buildings and being aware that others were photographing dogs, but it not being particularly your thing, where did you move on to next? How much time did you spend with that company and when, where did you go next? I spent about two years there. 
but I was very lucky. Maybe it was a little longer. I, I, I'm a bit hazy on that. I have to try and work it out. But he, uh, well, what did I, what did I do there? I did pretty much what I felt like doing because. Guyver, I didn't know it at the time, but he was suffering from a, a, an ailment. He, it killed him eventually. But I was able to go and play around in the studio photographing products, learning how to use camera movements, because in these large formats, you could wobble the front and the back around, if it's a way of putting it, um, or rise and drop bits, so that unlike a modern piece of equipment or a, a camera phone, the, the lens uh, wasn't fixed in a definite position uh, relative to the actual sensor in the thing, so, or the film in our case. And this is how you work in photographing architecture and products, so that you don't get buildings that are looking as if they're falling down, or that you can actually have some control over the shape you want the building to, to take on. It gives you cameras of that type give you great control. And so we had a, a, a very good, very famous, uh, Irish famous uh, architectural company uh, as clients. And I remember there was a rash of building churches around Dublin. Archbishop McQuaid decided that the buildings should be everywhere. Uh, and also that they had not to be modernist or in any way up to date. Okay. And so they were the weirdest buildings, and but there were stacks of them. And the other big thing they were doing at the time was cinemas. So I spent a lot of time wandering around photographing cinemas and churches as they got as they were finished um, for Robinson Keefe and Devan, a very very old architectural company. And that was my real passion, was photographing buildings. I did lots of other buildings as well, but they were, it was just memorable that there was a rash of these things. And where, what was the next phase in the career then? So you'd had this experience where you well, got to develop all these skills and identify what your kind of passion was as well. Well, I had been, as being a, a young chap, you see, I was a bit sort of excited about things like colour photography. Now, colour photography you, is the norm now, but in the... In the 1950s and in the 1960s, uh, the, there was a kind of joke, in fact, even at the end of the 60s, that the only person with black and white film in their camera was the professional. They, it was a very slow, uh, slow matter. But I was very interested in colour photography. I started, uh, uh, in my amateur times, I started taking pictures in, in colour, and I started processing colour transparencies in the said bedroom. Uh, and uh, some of them I, I have still. And so I, I was so keen on that. And there was a company in Dublin known as the Green Studio, on St. Stephen's Green, a good name for it. And that was a relatively young company. But the, the photographer there was Reggie Wiltshire. Uh, he was a remarkable man. And he was uh, having a good science degree. He was very technically minded. And he had gone in for colour processing in the studio. He was doing a lot of this sort of work. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, now, the Green Studio do the kind of work I really love. And they do, do it on a wider basis. So I started persecuting them. <laughs> and 
eventually, through a peculiar circumstance, I found myself working there. Happen uh, chance is a big part of it's your life, of my I think, life, right? As with most people's yeah. lives, I think. And that was a great thing. As they say, it was like a marriage made in heaven, except... Uh, Poor Reggie didn't last all that long. He died at 37, towards the end of the 60s. And But he and I had... We, we, were, we were of a similar mind. We enjoyed all sorts of photography, the architectural work, and a lot of commercial work, a lot of advertising and promotional things for brochures and things like that. And a lot of people came to us because we could do colour. Mm. We got a, an instruction, and that's the best way of putting it, in, the, in 1966, that we were to photograph the president, who was de Valera at the time. It wasn't a request, because we had the name that we could actually take a colour picture, a decent, large-format saucer-size transpar- colour transparency, which was to to be used to make a print because we also made colour prints mm-hmm. and this was to be to be sent uh, to Nigeria to the Guinness headquarters in Nigeria because <laughs> they had a portrait of of Queen Elizabeth II on the wall and it was felt probably by somebody in Guinness that they ought to have an Irish figure and I, and the Irish head of state beside in him in Nigeria and and, and so yeah, so that's that was a, an, an interesting challenge, I can tell you. Oh, where was that photograph that was taken? Photographed in Orson, in Orson Uktron, with um, with uh, the president telling me to make sure there were no, there were no uh, I think was it dirty or unquestionable or questionable books in the background, oh. as if <laughs> as if that were likely with President yeah, era <laughs> or any president for that matter. <laughs> So, but it was was one of those things. He was the most difficult person to photograph, the most pleasant and cooperative person. Really? But, but he had, a, he had a, a problem, as you, everybody knows, with his eyesight. And finally, he had more the the lens taken out of the one eye that had some function, and they used a, a really thick lens on the right hand side that focused through the, the iris down onto the, onto the retina. Oh, so he, one of his glasses lenses was really, was really thick. thick yeah. It was maybe two centimetres thick. I actually have that, but they can do wonders now where they thin it down so that yeah. you don't have a really but, thick one. Yeah. But if he, if he turned his head slightly sideways, it refracted light in such a way that he appeared to have a carbuncle out the side oh, of his right. head. <laughs> so <clears throat> it could only... Press the trigger when the that is to make the release yeah. <laughs> when um, when he when he was in, in exactly the right position. So we had to light for this, pose him for this, and, um, and this but is one couldn't reveal that one was dodging the carbuncle to him. <laughs> but at, by that sti- stage, we had some Polaroid, and I did some Polaroids, which he was able to look at. It's interesting to see him through this lens. He he had to see bits at a time. He couldn't see the whole picture. Yeah. Um, I still have them, by the way. Oh, you still have those? They're yeah. incredible to have. What an amazing thing from this from the location from shoot session, in Arsene yeah, Neutron. Yeah. And that was done with simple electronic flash. Uh, no modelling. You, you had to know by experience where the lights were to go, how to get the right uh, brightness range and shape in the face without being able to see it. 
and uh, that was, and then you had to calculate the exposure. Well, we'll come to that because we're going to talk about materiality a bit as well. But before we jump ahead, and I just want to check because, uh, you know, you're very patiently, obviously, (laughs) wondrously sitting there. This is, I'm assuming, pre your time. Sort of. Uh, I do remember a little from my very early years, the Green Studio. Yeah. Barely. Would you have been brought in there as a child? Would you have brought him in? I would have. I'd have been in there, but I wouldn't have done anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father's next place of work, I was brought in more often. And where does that take us to then? That takes us to uh, a, a business in Rathmines, in Upper or Lower, Rath- Lower Rathmines Road, Rathmines. that I recollect, where we would go in on a Sunday when things were busy and I would have to rock dishes, etc., and try not to have a tsunami of developer or something come over the top of me because you'd be reaching your arm up to do these things because I was quite small at the time. Uh, but in any family business, because at then it was partly his own business, yeah. uh, you always get dragged in. So at school, half-term school holidays, if there was interesting photography to be done elsewhere in the country, you'd be dragged off, etc. And it was great fun. And can I ask about that? Because um, I often think of this, you know, uh, you're being introduced to something that is, you know, we talk about the magic of photography, the alchemy of that process, but you are being introduced to it in a very matter of fact way, actually, because this is part and parcel of David's daily life. It's 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 just it's there at all times and it's been there since you were very young, David. So how what was your experience of that? Did you... Uh, were you aware of the process? Were you aware of it, or what? Or was it just part of daily life at that stage? Well, I, I, I'm suppose I'm slightly unusual in photographers insofar as I have never developed a film in my bedroom or washed <laughs> anything in my bath. <laughs> I would have to say I have hosed. Your father prints. would think you're missing out. I think there. <laughs> I've hosed prints down on a clothesline out, all right, out the, in the back garden, etc. Uh, but, but anyway. Um, I always had the advantage of being able to use a very a professional facility. Yeah. Um, but the magic is always there. You know, making a, a print and putting it into developer is as magical now and as interesting a creative process between your brain and your hands as it was 100 years ago. That doesn't change. Well, can I ask, I think, um, uh, you know, It'd be good maybe to look at that a little bit then, because I know we want to learn about you. So, I mean, David, you've obviously given us a bit of insight as to how you came to photography and how Happen Chance has played such a major part of it, but also completely your passion. And Edwin, you're coming to photography very much as David's son, that it is part of your life from, from the minute, from the very first moment you're born. And I suppose the thing then that hooks everybody is this magic. So while I do want to come back to some other kind of main points, I think, within your careers, can you talk to us a little bit about the process then, about the photographic processes? And I guess the key points really are film, camera and printing, because as you say, we're in a digital era now and it's completely different. How do you even describe something like film? How was film invented? Well, how was photography invented? But obviously people needed a, a, a media to carry an image that was more and more portable and more and more user-friendly. Which is still what they're trying to do, I suppose, when we're looking at the digital area. Absolutely. Yeah. You could, uh, it's totally analogous to a, a CCD or a CMOS chip, you know, all those different developments that have happened in digital technology. But, uh, you know, people started out with well, firstly paper, I suppose, but if it, mostly glass plates, you could say, and that wasn't that as portable, awkward, etc. And then the move Easy into to break, absolutely. And it was just for people who I suppose who aren't familiar with the process, because it's always for me, it's so hard to describe it. 
when you think of a camera, when you think of a glass plate, what is that? Like for someone listening, how do you even say what that is? What is happening in that box with that glass plate? Well, the glass plate is really a, a, just a, a substrate. It, it just holds a, a piece of sensitive material. And this material in question is normally in in the area areas that we're considering. The material, the material. So, give us a time is, frame on this as yes. well. Then. Well, from the early 1880s, when people started making gelatin emulsions, they started wanting to get something that was more portable. But they were using glass. A glass had been used since the 1840s in some very tricky manners and in relatively impractical manner. So they gradually uh, experimented in making a flexible thing, which wouldn't break so easily, it wouldn't weigh so much. You can see pictures of Carlton Watkins in America setting off for a photographic session in the, in the Rockies, uh, he was responsible, really, for the establishment of the national parks over there. He revealed to the East Coast just what the West looked like. How magnificent But he was off way. with several mules <laughs> carrying sheets of, huge sheets of glass, bigger than a, than a tabloid newspaper yeah. in, in size. And these mules would be carrying that stuff. And there were other mules with his dark tent, because he had to do, erect a dark room wherever he went. And you can think how difficult it would be uh, to do this sort of thing. So gradually, the, the, the search for a flexible, unbreakable material came about. Uh, George Eastman experimented, and he managed to produce roll film. And that was introduced in the 1890s, the early 90s. Uh, the big, long uh, court case went on for decades after that because there was another... A clergyman in America had inv invented celluloid and he claimed that, uh, that Eastman pinched his, some of his information, you see. Oh, right. Early, early industrial espionage. But it was settled. But one of them was dead when it was settled. So <laughs> that's another story. But the, this made great a great change because they could use it in sheets that would fit where the glass plates had been. But it also gave the chance for Eastman to develop a camera with a roll of film. In other words, he could wind the film around a spool and he would tape it to a length of black paper and and so that the light wouldn't go through the spool because you could have 10 of them in your pocket but let's come back in the for camera one, but come <clears> back for <throat> one sec because I'm conscious that all of us the three of us here have darkroom experience because um, and I mean this is where my love came from as well was being in the darkroom and working with cameras whether you have a piece of glass or um, a, a roll of film what is that doing inside the box? Because I'm conscious well, for people that are being introduced to photography, the majority of people today only know it from the digital era because even people who know photography pre-digital may never have had the experience of going into a darkroom. Well, what is happening in that box with the glass or the film? Well, coated on it, there, there is a layer of gelatin in which has been mixed what is known as a silver halide. That's really a silver chemical complex based on silver nitrate and it is, they make it into a very complex now, it's a complex halide. The original ones were only sensitive to blue light, oh. but the crystals in the 
in in this coating, which we call the film, on the, uh, were sensitive to blue light. They were gradually the sensitivity was increased by using dye stuffs, and uh, and that gave the material better sensitivity. So you could use it in a wider range of circumstances. It also gave a nicer result, and. It was sensitive to light. It captures just as a CCD does, or a, a CMOS today in your in your phone. Mm-hmm. It captures photons. Okay. And it there's an electrical response in this in the case of film. It affects the crystals in the film. And the, yeah, the other you probably everybody knows about, I suppose, in the in the in the phone type of thing. The, the CMOS sensor also captures. I don't think they do, though, because I think things. we take things for granted. We're just like it performs the function without knowing uh, what actually happens. So it's really interesting to talk because when we think photography, when I think of photography, I always think about light. And I think mm-hmm. with digital, that gets lost. You know, people don't think about it in the same way. But regardless then, so when we think about the exposure of light burning onto, or you know, um, having this chemical reaction with film or with glass, whether you have the most complex camera or the most basic camera. What's happening then when it comes in if we're thinking about cameras like as actual objects? Well, the important thing about any camera is that it's a a dark box Mm -hmm. and you control the light when it comes through via whatever lens mechanism you've got, Uh, whether that be simple or very complex. You don't want any sort of scatter, any the light getting polluted uh, that's coming through. You know, we, we all have sat out in the sunshine and had the same light hit us. And mm-hmm. if we sit there too long, we go brown or red. Mm-hmm. Um, that same photon of energy that's traveling with that light particle, which you can think of it as being like a ball bearing coming down, hits the film and makes an effect. Yeah. And it's held there. So long as no other light goes in and makes a mess of it, and in effect, you've treated part of the camera like a pair of curtains on a window and you're pulling the curtains back incredibly quickly and you're capturing a millisecond that image or the effect of the light that came through when you open those curtains for that millisecond are captured on that receiving mechanism which is exactly how it's doing on your phone exactly yeah Photographically, then, you obviously have to do something to that film in the form of developing it etc etc at the end point to which you have a negative and you do one thing that's a different matter is that nowadays you can point your phone or a modern digital camera at something and there are such sophisticated uh, devices within it it knows how much light to let through the lens to the shutter or the curtain as uh, Evan describes it and that's that was a function you had to do yourself Mm -hmm. Um, somehow you had to work out just how much light to let through the lens. And that, that was managed two ways, partly by the, using a device in the lens that opens and closes the, sm- the hole in the lens, if you like to think mm-hmm. of that as a, a, the aperture, and also the time. So you have the time and the, the brightness of the lens. And you had to do that partly by experience. You could at one time get charts that more or less told you how bright it was at any latitude at any time of the day and they were a great they were a great help but it was a long time before meters for measuring light became available when would light meters uh, have been introduced in the, in the light meters of the photoelectric side the 30s 
Oh, okay. Clergy too. Yeah. That said, I started my photography with a, a lot of boxes of transparency film, and inside them they had a Kodak had a nice thing printed for you know, hazy day, sunny day. Yeah, sun, I remember these. And I, I exposed dozens of films that way and yeah. got really very good results. Yeah, and I, I mean, I remember when I was in college and we were studying, and we would look at things like that. You know, like so you, you would have you would uh, eventually have something you kind of knew in your bones that on a sunny day or a particular cloud or rain or whatever that you would allow X amount of light. But so much of it, even with, I always found anyway, even with that precision, even with that knowledge, the wonderful thing about photography is there's always room for chance and there's, you know, even with the best laid plans, something different can happen because movement, light, everything can come into it. And... um, I suppose so if we think about that then that essentially and I really like that analogy that you're opening the curtains really quick <laughs> but the analogy with that is the curtains are your, your shutter and yeah. the size of the window that's behind the curtains is your aperture is your aperture exactly and how much light comes in then to this essentially a dark room or a dark box we know then that there's the chemical reaction with the light and the lens or the light and the film whatever that may be um, your um and then what are we doing in order to get that film to become a negative with which we can get a print? Talk us through that a bit. <laughs> just well, for everyone listening, they're just looking, they're eyeballing each other, wondering who goes first. Considering you spent uh, many, many years lecturing this to first years, I'll let you grab that one. Oh yeah, which oh. will bring us really nicely to the next <laughs> bit. Thanks. That sounds like a cop-out to me. But, um, <laughs> basically, what you, you have to do is amplify the recording of the light. You, there are little tiny specks of, of, of silver created with this light or separated with next to little sulfur specks that are in it and so on. And you have to put it into a solution commonly known as a developer. And that solution will selectively increase the size of the particles of silver in accordance with the amount of light that's fallen on any particular spot. There are a lot of things that will turn silver black. Light turns silver silver salts black anyway, but you have to have it subtly different so that you can tell the different brightness levels and even imagine you can see some of the colour values if the film is sufficiently colour sensitive. And that you have to put it to do this in total darkness. So yeah. whether it's a glass plate, which you can do in a dish or a tank or a film, uh, you have to unroll it or take it out of its holder, whatever it is, in total darkness. And you have then to develop it in accordance to a particular time. Now, the, the, this is one of the exciting things about photography, because given any particular type of film, because films vary in their own characteristics, not only in sensitivity, but in their tonality, which gives you the grey values, the lovely, pure, rich tonality of a really good photograph. And that particular process of development can affect the way the film reacts. You can increase the contrast. You can have, have more detail in the black department if you want, or remove it. Mm-hmm. You can do the same at the white end, the, the, what we call the highlight end of the, of the range. You can do the same thing. So you have a lot of control. You can say, what kind of representation do I want of that subject? And then develop it accordingly. That, uh, keen people did that. Other people just 
put it in for a, uh, uh, the local pharmacy or something who often had a little device. And there was a wonderful developer made by Kodak, which was around for many decades, called Time Standard. And basically, you could put any film into that developer for four and a half minutes, and you got a, and a you got workable a negative. Decent, yeah, <laughs> yeah. negative out of no it. No matter what film it was, yeah. no matter what you'd done with it, it was a fascinating subject, and that was very popular amongst people that did that sort of thing. But the professional and the keen photographer had other interests, like getting particular values into yeah. into their pictures. And this, for me, is where photography really, um, I suppose, it really comes alive with other art forms as well, because no two tools are the same and no artist or photographer especially uses them the same way. And I mean, when you look at oil paint and how you can push oil paint to do so many different things, for me, the same is absolutely true with photography and not just in terms of the type of image you take, but the process that you apply to it too. And I think then if we, so yeah, and the magic is very much there for me as well in terms of like the fact that you have to do it in the dark is amazing. (laughs) And we've talked about ways of knowing um, how you're loading your film or how you're loading the film. And like we talked about the fact that um, there's uh, the textures. So one side of the uh, roll of film was um, shiny and the other side was more matte. Isn't that right as well? Because I was trying to remember this. In most cases. Yeah. And when so it was a, a, a dodgy an variety that can fool you. Yeah, and if you put it in the wrong way around and expose it through the back, it's not a good idea. No, it's not a good. We won't get it. So if we, if let's say, right, we've taken, we've we've pulled back the curtains uh, for a particular amount of time in whatever size window that we're working with. We have then taken um, the film and we have put it through the process in the dark, so that we now have what is known as a negative. Um, yeah, they haven't got the negative. It's, it's a negative image, but there's also the positive image in there. Insofar oh. as the film hasn't been cleared, you know, the film there's a there's a silver halide positive and a and a silver negative in, in the developer. So you have to take it out of that, w- rinse it, and put it into fixer. Yes, sorry. Into hypo, yeah. as it used to be called, uh, and you've got to fix it. Yeah, so that it and will. that dissolves away all the silver halide and leaves you with the silver particles and your film and your final. And that you, you give will a take good a wash to from. that, and you've got an egg. <laughs> you've got an egg. So when we have the negative, then how are we getting? Because this is again something you know. We've got this box. We have this. Um, glass or film or whatever you want, whatever it happens to be used, it's coated. We then have this negative. How does it become a print? And how is it that you can get so many prints from a negative? So go on, Edwin. Wow. Well, uh, the, uh, the evolving technology of negatives went hand in hand with the evolving technology of prints. Okay. Uh, the whole evolution of different techniques to get finer qualities, more detail, ease of use. But I mean, even if I think in my own time of making prints, you know, of the latter years of non-digital imagery, there was an enormous range of choice of papers and different as much as there was a different choice of, first of all, the type of film you did for its characteristics, the development you put that film through. There was equally a choice of the paper you went to print it on Mm -hmm. because they all reacted slightly differently. And then the developer you used for that paper because the, the, the paper goes through a similar process. It, it's it's a light sensitive paper. Mm-hmm. Again, you, you're not doing this in total darkness in the case of black and white. Uh, you do have 
a certain amount of safe light that you Which can use. Which is red. Red light would be usually no. Not always red. <laughs> Not always. There we go, the exceptions. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, you can have a slightly brighter orange light. The red light is a little dimmer when you've got the light on mm-hmm. with the same wattage lamp, but we'll skip out that. Um, it's, um, but you you, ha- you can get the chance to make your picture larger. The purpose of making the print is a lot of your negatives have been of a restricted size and a more convenient size. Mm-hmm. Uh, to fit in the camera in the first place. So that you can bring the camera out and about with you, mm-hmm. potentially in your pocket or at least in a little bag you're carrying, not yeah. on pack mules like yeah. we were talking about <laughs> earlier. Uh, not everybody has access to pack mules. <laughs> so we've shrunk the camera, yeah. but we don't want to shrink the end print. So yeah. we've now got to go through a different process. You know, the, the pack animal system, you made a negative the same size as you wanted the print. As the print, they were the exact same They were exactly size, the right? same size. Yeah. So now we've got to a point further on in the development where you can, ha- where you can make the pr- prints bigger than the negatives. Yeah. And that's what you do in the dark room. That's not dark. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're still called dark rooms, unfortunately. There was, never, there was never any other word for it. Yeah. A semi-dark room never existed. Yes. It's, it's very difficult to judge the appearance of a print in red light. Yes, I, I do remember this. Because they always appear darker. The black's much stronger. Yeah. And it really gives a distorted view. And it's only for a very special occasions when would you be using red lights in photography uh, it long ago that used to happen because the early films weren't sensitive to red light so you could use quite a bright red light for that mm-hmm. um, but um, those days are long gone you can still get orthochromatic as the non-red sensitive film was called but uh, very few people use it only specialist people use that no so when we have, so obviously we've talked about the fact that you can then have quite a small negative, but you can en- you can enlarge this to a large print. How does that happen, Edwin? <laughs> well, you've obviously got to have some sort of device to enlarge it that mm-hmm. has you, you, that holds your negative with a light behind it okay. and projects light through that onto your light sensitive paper. And so for people, I suppose most people will know a projector um, and I mean, we have them in schools, etc. And I, I mean, I remember when I first went to art college, we still had the old carousel projectors for looking at slides. So essentially you have a small image that through light and space projects quite large. Mm-hmm. And we're looking like, I mean, we're talking about a similar process, except Absolutely. it's obviously more contained. You're not talking on a back wall. No, you're talking no. on a sheet of paper. In general, it's a vertical system. What you're we talking about there, we have yes, a horizontal projector, yes, but here yeah. we have a vertical projector yeah. unless you're making very large prints yeah uh, similar to an overhead projector no well better to think of getting your ordinary projector and putting it up in the okay. air and projecting down onto just to a clarify table. that was a no <laughs> from Edwin no <laughs> just for anybody wondering what happened in here I got a look it's Un- a no <laughs> unfortunately, unfortunately the scientist in me comes out on occasions uh, yeah well this is sorry and just I think we should say that while you obviously have a very committed interest in photography you have a whole other career as well which was in in physics in physics uh, yes having grown up in a, a photographic household and been imbibed all this photography and working at it etc I went on a totally different route in the form of physics and working in latterly in Jervis Street Hospital which became the Jervis Street Centre here in Dublin um, in blood pressure mes- measurement research but nothing's new in this world and there was a very large world recession and funding for what I was doing dried up and I was sitting doing quite little and my father had a customer who strangely had quite little money 
and said, look, would you be interested in doing an exhibition and a display for these people since you're kind of doing nothing else? So I started on that and then, <laughs> and then went back, uh, set up my own company doing exhibitions and displays and studying photography as part of that and then sort of graduated into photography and then joined forces with my father for and the rest is history. Yes, for this unstoppable force that I would call the Davisons. But I presume the scientific element then obviously of photography has a, a real draw for you. Well, a lot of what we've always done has been pretty exact. Um, I suppose my training either gives me it's the right way or it's the wrong way. There's no there's no total grey area. I'm really glad neither of you taught me then because that's definitely not how I approach things. There might have been a bit of happen chance that I referred to you earlier. I definitely wasn't that specific. So a, a lot of work we would do would be, these days would be in uh, artist reproductions and fine art reproductions. Mm-hmm. And in order to get colours very exact, there's quite a science to that. Of course, um, yes. And my background in that, a lot of people, you know, I'd have given lectures to various photographers and a lot of people shy away from that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't like it to get too complicated because everything's fine the way it is. But somehow I always seem to have to understand actually how it's working. Mm-hmm. Because w- once I have an understanding, I know how to work it out. That's no matter what I'm at. I just I'd like to know actually how it works. I guess it depends on where you're coming at it from as well, because if you're there to record this art object, of course, you need to be as true to it as possible. Whereas if you're using photography as a method to create an art object, then that's a completely different. But if you understand the process, you can use that knowledge to create the artistic thing you see in your head the same. If you don't actually understand it, same if you don't understand how to prepare a canvas properly yeah. uh, and apply paint per- correctly, it might just fall off. You actually need to understand the process. Always, oh, absolutely. No matter what it is. And I think only by understanding the process, absolutely, can you then play around with it significantly to create different effects. Absolutely. But if we, because we've done another preamble, but if we come back then to getting that negative to a print, we know that we're shining a light. We have the mechanism. We have the enlarger. We're shining the light through it, um, comparably to like a projection. What happens then? How do we get it onto the paper so that when we remove the light, it's not gone? Well, before you remove the light, you have to consider what you do while the light is projecting onto the paper. Is this is no automatic thing? I mean, you normally you do a test piece that represents much of the image, and you give it say whatever five seconds exposure, 10 seconds exposure. Because the paper is light sensitive. So yeah, when you expose the, the light. light through the negative, yeah. what's and the, going on to the and paper is And then you develop the and fix that Yeah. In, as with the film. But you then assess it and you say, well, that shadow area there is a bit dark. That's not what I want. Or it may not be dark enough. If it's not, if it's too dark, during the time the light is going down, you dodge, you you. you hold something in the way to dodge the light to stop some of the light falling on that bit of the paper if it's too bright you use your hands normally make a little shape with your hands and you project a bit of extra light which is to burn right burn it and these for people yeah and for people who know the digital world then in adobe photoshop the terminology all comes from the original photographic process absolutely yes they're just pinching our terminology well it's the same thing (laughs) there's no great difference but there is a, this is how you change and express your notion of the picture. Making the negative, you have a lot of control. Making the print, wow, you have tremendous control. And, but you have to know in your mind what you want the print to, do, to look like, and then you 
do all this dodging and burning and Edwin would be fond of doing a certain with a certain paper a little bit of extra time in the developer because he liked a particular paper that produced something special. Absolutely. <laughs> well, certain negatives require a certain technique to make a very good print. Yeah. And once you know that, I would know the technique for that, but you wouldn't necessarily have known. You would have done something different. Mm-hmm. You may have picked a different <coughs> brand of paper, mm-hmm. etc., and you would have got a totally different result. They would have both been good prints, but yeah. different. Oh, yeah, of course. And I think in the hands of different people, a negative can do so many different things as well then. I think it's appropriate to quote Ansel Adams, the famous uh, West Coast American landscape photographer, who said that if the, he, was, he trained initially as a concert pianist. And he said, if the negative is the score, the print is the performance. Yeah. And that sums it up. You know you can hear a different conductor producing from the same music, mm-hmm. something quite different. Yeah. And that's the same with photography. And so if we're talking then, we have uh, and so the, the process of keeping this print then. There's a lot of creative control in terms of how you make the print and the process of making it stay on the paper because we're talking about positioning the light through it follows a similar process as the negative in the first place as the film does in terms of um, uh, uh, developing it and fixing it and my constant memory was of um, develop, fix and stop fix and stop are the same right? stop and fix stop and fix Uh, again I'm getting um, like reprimanding looks in here because (laughs) I haven't been in a dark room in a while (laughs) to my shame obviously right now but um, so with with the prints then with this process and how important it is and how like I mean from this conversation we're having it's there's science in it there's artistic response to it there's so many different elements to photography in Ireland, obviously, then, we needed someone to teach this and we needed courses. And you made reference, obviously, Edwin, to your father uh, teaching. And David, could you tell us a little bit about where your career went then in terms of education and how that happened? Well, of course, during the period I, I spoke of earlier, I was studying hard uh, and going over to London to do the IB. BP as it was at the time there to do their exams in the Regent Street Polytechnic and uh, it was quite hard work because I just got the curriculum and I had to learn everything even though the curriculum dated back to dot and uh, it was more a historic thing than an entirely uh, current affair but I did it and I and that I had and I was in in the Green Studio by this stage I had become a director of the Green Studio and we were churning along and Reggie, who was very, very forward thinking, he decided, along with certain other members of the Irish Professional Photographers Association, that there was need for a proper course to actually teach professional photography. Now, there were all these people coming into the business. They hadn't a clue what they were doing. They were doing things very badly, uh, innocently, not processing things properly so that the person that got the end result would not have it for necessarily very long and there were all kinds of, and technologies were changing, demands on what photography was to do were changing and so they campaigned very hard the committee and particularly the education subcommittee of the IPPA worked very hard with various uh, 
local government authorities and eventually they agreed a course would be started in the newly built College of Technology in Kevin Street. Which became Dublin Institute which of Technology, is the, which is now, is now the, technological, the Technological University, yeah. which is where actually which I had studied years ago. Oddly enough, is, was the first college of its kind in Ireland. Mm. And strangely, around 1890 and 91, I actually taught photography, but it fizzled somewhere there. And so they, they decided that we could go in there. Well, and so they advertised for lecturers. Um, I, of course, didn't apply. I was far too busy doing my photography. And, uh, and then I got uh, a visit from uh, one of the leading members of the association, not Reggie himself. I think he thought it better, somebody else who that had. And Keynesian said, look, David, we've got a problem. We've got a permission to start this course in September. Um, but the applicants for the position... Are, have been deemed unsuitable. Will you do it? <laughs> I looked at him. He said, well, if you don't do it, the course won't happen. Oh, well, that's emotional blackmail. <laughs> uh, it was, particularly <laughs> as Reggie was uh, was very much in favour of the whole thing and, uh, and he was a very close friend as well as colleague. And I, so I said I'd have a go. I, I, I was paid... Uh, by the by the hour it was decided it would be a, at that time a part-time day release course that was one day and three nights a week now that's this covered everything now from physics to chemistry to mm-hmm. communications it wasn't you know, it wasn't all. It was a, a complete educational course. And did you have to write the course content, the module descriptors, all of yes. that kind of thing? Okay. I had to. I had to devise everything. Okay. About the course, I did have a, a, a colleague, Jim Mulvaney, but Jim, he was highly qualified. Also, he was a, a medical photographer, and he. But he. He said, "Look, I'll teach my hours, but I'm doing nothing with the organisation." <laughs> That was his arrangement. He was prepared to go that far, which was fair enough. But it meant it all landed on me, and I. I but I got to rather like it. But it was a, it was a strange experience to walk into a classroom for the first time, and be met with thirty people, um, one or two females only. Yeah. At that time. I was going to ask you actually, what were the gender yeah. balance like? Well, and it, it wasn't a balance. <laughs> yeah, it was a massive impact. Uh, he, <laughs> And uh, a good number of them older than myself, and some of them probably earning twice as much as I was. And were they have been, uh, say in the very first class, would they have been people who were already in their career? And then because this was something you could do one day in three evenings or something, it was yeah. something they were going back to do. Yeah, there were so more there of were, a passion kind of a, a. It was a mixture. There were those people who had just started off as assistants, which was the traditional oh, yeah. way to start, and their employer said, "Now at least I can send my assistant to actually learn something." So it would have been approached yeah. like a trade originally, where you kind of um, you studied under somebody as such. Yeah, well, yeah. that's not uncommon. Solicitors are all went that way as well, and yeah. doctors still do. Yes, no, no, I am. <laughs> I'm just thinking of it in terms of uh, everything these days is considered. You know, ter- you know, you have to go straight to university and there's yeah. so much to be learned in terms of kind of vocational training. Well, we were advised, you see, there was a, during the 60s, this was, this course started in 1967, okay. but earlier in the 60s, there was a rash, 
possibly in some way related to Tony Armstrong Jones, better known as Lord Snowden. Lord Snowden, who um, anybody who's watching The who, Crown will know <laughs> as Princess uh, Margaret's husband. Yeah. He, yeah. he suddenly respectabilized photography in a way. If, if the, if the, if the, oh, the princess's <laughs> husband could, could be a photographer, well then photographers are all, all not as dodgy characters as, <laughs> as, the, as the public generally thought. <laughs> and, and so, Although if you've seen series two of The Crown then that comes <laughs> into focus as well. <laughs> well, in, in England every third level college decided uh, not ever, a great many, all the, the what you call the red breaker establishments or something, decided they had, they had to have a course in photography. And they were producing in, in England at that time about 3,000 photographers a year with degrees. Yeah. Uh, about 50 of them got jobs. <laughs> the rest of them drove buses, ran businesses. They did anything. Yeah. It was it was crazy. And we got good advice, both from continental associ- uh, uh, colleagues and English colleagues who came over and gave us advice. They said, look, if you just start taking people in every year, you'll oversupply. Uh-huh. Said, if you take in people who are already in the business as, appren- as apprentices, mm-hmm. assistants, or as the bosses, as some of them were... Then you can, you will be meeting the demand, the right demand, mm-hmm. and not overheating the the whole thing. And improving the quality of it while you're at it. Then, yeah. So, and yeah. The, you see, the, a lot of people just said, "Look, I've been working for twenty five, thirty years in this business, but there are lots of things I'd like to learn. So, yeah. I'm going to college." Um, but it's continued professional development is how we yeah, see it now. That's as well. what it's called it now. Yeah. Having, yeah. Been, having been a a person who took part in it, uh, it all you were learning is something that you were making your money with the rest oh. of the week. So what you spent Monday afternoon doing was something that was of total value to you on Wednesday afternoon. Yeah. And if you encountered something on Friday and you didn't really know how to do it, you were back in with you and you met people on Monday, on Monday and you yeah. could ask a question. It was actually real. Your exams were all about the real world. Yeah. There was nothing esoteric and, or imaginary about any of this stuff. It was all what you actually needed to do to make a living. And you were with your peers. You were with people who were doing this themselves as well. Something I have to say I really miss about uh, college and when I was um, studying fine art practice and whether I was working in photography or painting was that idea of being with other people who were doing the same kind of thing in terms of learning from them also, that we would have shared hints and tips and discoveries, etc. And um, even though the curriculum would have been the same, we would all interpret it our own way as well. And I think that's something that goes with a lot of artistic endeavours is that mm-hmm. people work in isolation you know yeah it does and you when you're when you're studying it you're not and then you fall away and most artists i know now uh be they you know uh, working in fine art or design or illustration or anything it is very isolating a lot of the time and for photographers presumably the same you know you're kind of solitary we've, we've always been fortunate that we've at least bounced off each other got each other <laughs> yeah. but in some of the specialist printmaking techniques we do with making platinum prints etc you know, we would have worked away on that for a few years on our own with no yardstick to measure ourselves against except our own mm-hmm. visual ideas of what we wanted on the paper. Uh, unfortunately, I was able to go and see some other works in America against the people who I would have looked up to as my peers, etc. So they, these are the people that do these things. And I was very pleased when I arrived and saw that my prints were well mm-hmm. comparable with their standards, etc. 
but you, you get that sort of slight inferiority complex because you're working away on your own and you don't know what anybody else is doing. Of course. Yeah. And you, so you, it makes you strive harder and harder yeah. and harder to make it better and better than what you imagine something else is. Yeah. And when you talk about, sorry, so when you say that you did this course, David, were you teaching when Edwin, you did the course? Yeah. Yes. This is wonderful. <laughs> that, was, that was difficult for him because... Uh, See, the opposite to favoritism is, is what applies in situations like yes, that. You course. have to be, on, be beyond reproach. So he had a tougher time, really. But I'd imagine you probably put more <laughs> pressure on yourself then as well. Well, I was busy working. Uh, I, had, I, mean, I had my own business. I was doing college. I was getting married at the same time. I had just bought a house. That's a lot. So there was a lot, there was a <laughs> yes, lot going on because yeah. project work was done during summer, summer break from college, etc. Uh, so there was a lot happening. Yeah, you'd, you'd, you'd finish lectures at 10 o'clock and you might have to be at Belfast the following morning at nine to do a job. Uh-huh. It, was, it was hard work. And um, so just, I mean, this is obviously bringing us more kind of in, into today now, but how long did you teach? How long were you with the course then, David? 36 years. Wow, okay. Yeah. Longer than I it's thought. It's evolved a great deal in that in that time. And what's wonderful is it's there now. Yeah. I mean, this is something, and it's it's so well known that course. I mean, anybody oh, yes. I know who wants to do photography wants to go and study it at what is now Technological yeah. University. Well, back in my time, we got we attracted students from Australia and from Finland and Germany, which was not bad. No, not, not at all. Bad. I mean, the reputation uh, is fantastic. And by that time, you see, we had had to go into a full-time course for the most peculiar of reasons. And that was that, contrary to what had been happening in the philosophy prior to that, a lot of employers were looking at their, at their employees and saying, hmm, that person knows more than I do. I'm not happy with this situation. I'm not letting them continue and finish the course. That happened with some with some people, and it's and others said, "Well, now this uh, you've got this person so good now, I can't afford to lose them for one day a week, and uh, I can't let them g- g- go out." I mean, we had even one company in Dublin that rang up the office in the in the college and said, "We want to. Uh, we were looking for a photographer." To, on, to employ a new another photographer. Have you any student uh, in second year? And they said yes. They shouldn't have said anything actually, but they said yes. They said, and they want this person. They want a person to go and work for them on condition that they left the college. And the reason they went for them was because they were in the college. Of course, yes. So, and there was a, a lot of trouble with people leaving, having to leave because they just simply weren't allowed the time off. So we had then to transform it into a, a whole-time course. A whole-time course, which is as it is now as well. Uh, which it has been yeah. ever since. And we've uh, gradually got it to be a, an honours degree course as well. Um, which hasn't. Which, uh, during this time, during the, over this period of 36 years, uh, at what point was the company that you obviously both work in now, um, in Davison's, when, when, did you, when was that set up? I think that was 1990. 1990, I think so. I think so. And it came yeah. from the two of you? Yeah. Was it a joint yes. decision? Yes, yes. Well, my my career had wandered on, you see. The, the Green Studio really came to an end in, in my terms uh, because Reggie had died and his wife Eleanor 
uh, who owned most of the shares, tried to continue, but she she was devastated by the loss of, of Reggie. And uh, she felt, really, she had to, had to leave the country now. She was born, reared, and everything, but she, everything reminded her of him. Mm. And she went to, to live in London, where she had never lived before. But And uh, that meant I put in my offer to buy the company. If somebody else put it in, they were thinking, I think, uh, not of what I was thinking, which was photography. They were thinking of photography plus the value of the building we were in. We had a, obviously a valuable lease, and they, mm. I would never have thought of leaving that because we'd spent so much money on putting the building back to an 18th century It was in look, Stephen's Green. Cleaned right? it, yeah. Mm. We had it all, did a lot of work on it. And so, anyhow... Uh, I formed another company then with, with uh, Louis Peterser, who was a Dutch Dutchman who worked here in Dublin. And we worked for many, many years. We, and, but that, for one reason or another, was coming to an end. And I think that, well, I, I asked him if he would sell up, and he didn't. And then eventually I said, well, I'll sell it to you more or less for, for very little. And so, and this was all coming about, and so Edwin and I formed a new company. Dave's and Associates. Yeah. And for those who don't know then, can you tell us a bit about what you currently do and what you have done for the past many years with Dave's and Associates? What's your bread and butter? What's your day-to-day work or does it change every day? Well, I suppose traditionally over the years, we have, we, we have always done a lot of art architecture, art and fine, uh, fine arts we, we did all of Christie's photography here for well, when they were getting photography done here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we, and one of the Christie's jobs was one of the more interesting things of when I was a secondary school student, you know, in the summer we were hawked off down to Burke Hassel uh, like, that's not bad now as a secondary school student for oh, no, no, no. to do with I, your summer. I had, a very, I had a very charmed life in many ways. I, I got to <laughs> see lots of parts of the country that most people wouldn't uh, at my age. Uh, very strange experiences, but uh, some of them I'll keep for another time. Um, but yeah, I know. We're going to have to do three series just on you, I think, for the podcast. Burke Castle. Uh, I remember we finished up about three days and I was really tired and really hungry. Uh, I had just done my intercert for people who will age me. Um, Which is the now junior now, yeah. yeah. And my father was called off and I was sitting in the car waiting to go and get dinner and I was getting a bit fed up. But he was hauled off at that stage to be shown what was at that stage shown to be the, the photographic room, isn't that? The camera room. The camera room. And, uh, in Burkhastle. In Burkhastle, which of course has turned out to be the world's oldest surviving darkroom from the 1840s. Um, luckily, my father knew what it was. I did not know this. This is complete news to me. I, 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 <laughs> I'm in a complete moment of shock. What? Burr Castle well, has the <clears throat> oldest dark room yeah, surviving in the world. Oldest world. surviving dark room Absolutely. in the world. And you yeah, I, I, established I, 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 and identified that it was the oldest room. Would you like to see the camera room? And the Knight of Glynn, who was the, respo- the, the representative for. Um, or Christie's here. He thought he wanted to go. Wasn't every Edwin <coughs> certainly wanted to have been gone. And um, I love that it, during this 
absolute pivotal moment in Irish history you are thinking I just I'm really hungry oh would you God. just come on <laughs> <laughs> I love that I was a like teenager. normal life comes in yeah teenage life oh I'm so hungry it's just more old photographs you may have had, you may have had a steak thrown to you he had a steak thrown to him the oh, yeah. previous night in the, the <laughs> local hotel. We were all sitting at a long table and the, the waitress came and she, she was sort of had put down a plate here. She the other far end was she couldn't reach. She just tossed the plate, <laughs> com- completely steak on top of it. <laughs> That's all right. The, the dinner uh, tasted fine on the tablecloth. <laughs> But anyhow, I, he, uh, the, uh, the night asked me, was, he puts on all sorts of acts, you know, he's quite a character. Uh, but Lord Ross brought me down, and I thought, yeah, you know, you see this. Because I was, uh, one of my great interests from in the 70s has been the history of photography, and particularly Irish photography, but photography in general, particularly 19th century history. And... There I get carted down to this place and it was getting dark and it was a dark room because even with the window open, which it had a blood dark window, uh, we discovered there was no electricity in it. So I was in this gloom and I opened a cupboard and I almost collapsed. I was looking at the 1850s at this point. The cupboard, the contents of the cupboard were photographic chemicals and apparatus and the whole darkroom full of apparatus dealing, in fact, from 1842, in the case of the, the daguerreotype material that subsequently appeared, but the, it was full of chemicals ready to go, and there was even a darkroom clock which had belonged to the fourth Earl, now a bit later on, and I flicked the little switch and it started ticking, and oh, I thought, look, at there now, I said, is um, 70-year-old energy coming out in the clock. Oh my gosh. The fourth Earl by the way was the man who built the telescope. No, the no. small the, the the lunar heat. Third Earl built the telescope. Yeah. Mm. So stand correct. Third Earl Third Earl bought the daguerreotype and it's wonderful stuff because the manuscript instructions on how to make a daguerreotype are there with the stuff. So this was almost like uh, this was trans. This is so almost like travelling back in time. This is time machine. Cupboard. Yes, I've used that term. It's a term, time, and then I opened another cupboard, and there was more. And then, of course, I found lots of negatives, lots of Mary Countess of Ross's negatives, and uh, all on wet collodion plates. And so, uh, I was getting the, the excitement of a lifetime, which very few people managed to have and he was listening to his belly rumbling <laughs> <laughs> in the car <laughs> absolutely I, I, that's incredible I, well first of all I never knew that 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 was the oldest uh, surviving dark room and can I just one more question how had it had the room been shut and nobody had gone into it or how had it survived in that way like, uh, well it was it was fortunate in the sense of, uh, a, a strange feature of history is that the Mary, the wife of the uh, the third Earl of Ross, she didn't get on with her daughter-in-law. Her husband had died in in 1867, and the daughter-in-law, Cassandra, uh, fine woman, she was. I mean, a characterful woman herself. And maybe there were two very characterful women, but they 
they did not get on. And uh, so she liked eliminating a lot of stuff, but for, of the, belonging to the, her predecessor. But fortunately, the room was handy. It was at the end of a, a long route, and things got dumped there. Lots of stuff got dumped in on top of the place. So it got preserved by being submerged to, to some degree. And was just that room that anybody who has any bit of space has, where they just put stuff and close the door. Yeah, there was all sorts of junk, even a toy yacht in there. And heaven, heaven <laughs> knows where. I, mean, I photographed it all as found. Uh, and subsequently, I, I eventually made arrangements to, to do some research down there. Research that went on for decades, but that's an <laughs> another story. Uh, but you know, it's a, it's a remarkable collection of remarkable photographs produced by a very very gifted woman, and um, who had quite a reputation. The first woman to get the silver medal from from the the Photographic Society of Ireland, and uh, and there's a there's a well. There's a whole story. You, you can read the book, as they say. Yeah, well, we'll have to. <laughs> well, having, having found said negatives, of course, we then started making prints that would have been the sort of matched pair part of that process. Uh-huh. Um, because they'd only gone so far, obviously, when you have, when you, if you open that cupboard and you find these negatives, it's half the story as well. Oh, it's only a quarter of the story. <laughs> oh, there you go. And that started off our interest in making lots of different print types and different techniques that have evolved over the... And that's and you very much the company specialises in that, right? And also, am I right in saying the conservation processes in order to conserve um, pre-digital photography methods, plates, prints, etc. Absolutely, yeah, yeah? yeah. We do that. We we cover we cover a, a, a particular range within a very wide range of photographic uh, car- uh, types. We cover. A narrow enough band in that with with particular specialism you can't really just have one in Ireland mm-hmm. so we do a lot of fine art reproduction which Edwin is probably the most su- <laughs> superb person in the country for that I mean he he has gone to a lot of trouble uh, studying in America and so on how to do that and we do um, we photograph quite a bit of architectural related material and um, we do conservation. Um, we have conserved, after all, the Father Brown collection of forty-two thousand negatives. Um, Which is in our um, time. You, actually um, because just as we come kind of towards the end of the podcast, and sorry to interrupt you, I wanted to ask you about some of the kind of the greats that you rate because we have talked about this a little bit. And when you mention Father Brown, I mean this is um, really an incredible. Uh, archive or collection or whatever one you want to call it of photography and can you tell us about Father Brown what that is for people who don't know and how you came to it Who is Father Brown? Who is Father Brown? Ireland's best photographer of the first half of the 20th century Um, happened to be a Jesuit priest happens to be the First World War's most decorated chaplain um, but had a natural gift with people and photography managed through a, an interesting story to get free film for life from Kodak. Wow, how did he manage that? Well, he, as far as we know, I think you you spoke to somebody who got that story or or is it or is it just a 
It's we speculated. We speculated on the fact. You see, he he used to write for the Kodak magazine. Okay. I, mean, he was I, I think I think he wrote for that though as part payment yeah, for his film. Far. There was but a whole kind of the unwritten change. deal going yeah. on here. See, he became world famous overnight in 1912. In April 1912, a certain ship decided to run into a lump of ice. And for anyone who doesn't know what you're <laughs> alluding to, state it, please, David. The Titanic. Yes. He was on the ti- he was on the Titanic, but not for its last leg. In other words, he 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 had a ticket given to him by his uncle to travel from London railway station um, from London to Southampton to Cherbourg and to Cove. Uh, Cove was the end of his journey mm-hmm. and in that short spell he took some of the most remarkable pictures. Being a remark, as Edwin says, a remarkably gifted photographer, he didn't just do snapshots. He did a sort of press job mm-hmm. on no, he, the, he, on the he, he journey. Got, when he got off on the tender in <clears throat> Cove, he got off with a young guy called Jack O'Dell, and Jack O'Dell had a camera. And I've been very fortunate to handle Jack O'Dell's album of pictures that he took off. And they're all rubbish. They're all happy snaps, crooked and all sorts of things. <laughs> That's not where I thought Father Brown got on with a camera, but had an ability. Yeah. Jack O'Dell got on but unfortunately he didn't, so there are no great pictures from him. Mm-hmm. He, he had a natural eye and a true instinct for the moment. And he, he, he was, it, it's remarkable because he was dealing with pretty primitive equipment, pretty primitive film, and he really did some, well, there are two exhibitions of his work in America permanently. There is a good hunk of his stuff in Belfast and... Uh, Anything to do with the Titanic, you're likely to end up with mm-hmm. farther round pictures. And it, so when you say he came to international <clears throat> uh, international recognition um, after the Titanic, assumedly because he was the last person to properly document it then. Well, he had pictures. Yeah. He was one of the yeah. only ones to document <clears throat> yeah. His pictures were sent around the world by wire because yeah. there was headline news. He was on the front pages of newspapers all over. And even 25 years ago, they got another go of it because a lot of people did a 25th anniversary of the disaster. Mm-hmm. But, and again, front pages. So he had a, a widespread... Now, we have a, a, a theory, and it may or may not be correct, but that he would have known a certain man by the name of George Davison. George Davison was an... Unfortunately, no relative. I was going no to say relative. Unfortunately. Sorry, no. <laughs> George Davison ended up really as the managing director of Kodak UK, which was also responsible for the continent. And he was a remarkable photographer himself. He, was, he belonged to this linked ring group of, of revolutionary, visionary photographers uh, uh, at, at the base, really, of the pictorialist movement. And he, was, he had, he had a, a, an enormous social conscience, whenever you put it this way. Uh, he he made a lot of money, but a man who spends his money on bringing kids from from the London slums down to his place in south in the south of France, renting a train for the purpose, is the sort of person who would get on well with Father Brown, whose mm-hmm. business was people, uh-huh. whose concern was about people, and we we sometimes think that, seeing as he was managing director for Kodak, somehow or other, Brown. Became got this film offer from Kodak. 
There's no record of where it came, but the one possibility is that those two people would have been of like mind, both photographically gifted, photographically crazy, and um, very socially minded. Mm-hmm. And so I think that yeah, could be... Yeah, I think be. Father Brown would have visited. I think he was in Harrow. You know, yeah. There are pictures of yeah. testing Brock's brownie lenses in, on the production line taken by Father Brown. They're a little blurry, but quite dark in the spot. Mm-hmm. But... Um, he at that stage was making a lantern slideshow or a slideshow or like a, power, a, a very old PowerPoint show and he wanted text put on the the slides and Kodak were putting the text on the slides so I sort of think that when he was there doing that um, This relationship may have started And that was a slideshow about the Titanic and quite uh. strangely we have a letter in the Father Brown pictures written by the White Star Line the owners of the Titanic yes. a year after the ship sank asking Father Brown to stop if he could showing his show because they didn't want to perpetuate the memory of the disaster oh right okay <laughs> that didn't quite work out <laughs> no, I was going to say he didn't do that and can I ask then so how did you two come to Father Brown and what role have you played in continuing um, I suppose the engagement with his work and even I suppose the relationship with the gallery then in terms of what the gallery has now in its collection well you know best the story of how it came how it actually came about Yes, well, this being Ireland, somebody always knows somebody. And it just happens that Nicholas Robinson uh, was a good friend of mine. And his wife, Mary, was related to a certain Jesuit priest by the name of Edward O'Donnell, S.J. Um, and he he came across these pictures in the in a big metal trunk in the basement of the provost's house he was sorting out something i don't know what one of his duties and he came across these negatives and he had the wit to see there was something special about them and so he asked uh, he asked various people over from the sunday times in in london and from this the independent on sunday as well they came over and they looked at them and were gobsmacked. Now, I don't know why he thought of that, but I know he reads the Times but to this day. But anyhow, he thought something ought to be done. So he said, uh, I know that Mary's husband is interested in photography because he and I and uh, we'd been involved in the, in the Irish Architectural Archive from the beginning, which was very much in, interested in photography. And so Nick rang me and he said uh, would I go to a meeting with uh, with him to this uh, Father O'Donnell so we went into into Eddie's place in Gonzaga and we got into his room and there he was we sort of could see him through the haze of uh, cigarette smoke uh, so this is relevant in a way because as he we started discussing and started to look and I looked at some of the 35mm work and I said my god these pictures look like Cartier-Bresson mm-hmm. they're brilliant I was of course in due course I realised that those pictures were made before Bresson started taking pictures so he wasn't copying them yeah. but then he would the bar. take he took out these albums with these negatives which had a certain aroma to them now that aroma is a nasty aroma that's sign A, it's nitrate film. Okay. Nitrate film can go on fire all by itself. Uh-huh. And in a, in, a, in a tin box like that, it constitutes a bomb. 
Um, and here he was, p- taking this was up with over a cigarette it, yeah. in one finger. <laughs> <laughs> and even I think to this day, if you were to come across one of those albums, you would still smell sweet afton off them. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it has a distinctive smell. We got used to it. But the, neg- the negatives, they had, he had looked at them so many times that he, they'd acquired the smoke it had, had, had settled yeah. on, on them and to this day it's there the smoke is still there in the smoke thing. is still in the th- and in so the he thing. obviously introduced you to these negatives to the collection etc the, the, the content that was there and then what was the following like go well, forth and do f- what you can with it or well, what what we said was that they, they first of all the, the nitrates were in very great danger the whole thing needed conservation and soon and um, of course, said of course, we could do that, but it was going to cost quite a lot of money. Uh-huh. I mean, actually, not quite forty-two thousand. Well, forty-one thousand six hundred and thirty-two originals. Give there. or take. Give or take. <laughs> and so that was going to cost money because what we did, you see, they have to look back to the technology of the day. We are, we proposed to make. A, a second set of, neg- of negatives of, of this was I, I would negatives. say this was back 86, 87 and the technology of scanning and digital wasn't really that fantastic that uh-huh. you would have said we're going to digitise all these okay. so the te- you know, giving it its context that really film was the technique that we had to do that so you had yeah. to photograph every single re-photograph negative re-photograph yeah. every single negative absolutely Yes, Edwin made up a a fantastic device. He made up a, a, you see, the film used for making these duplicate negatives was so insensitive that in order to make it... If you photograph a negative with an ordinary film, Mm -hmm. you get a positive. Of course, yeah, because you're getting the And then you would have to photograph the positive to get another negative. And all the time you're diluting the quality, right? So we could could get a direct negative-to-negative film. Mm Mm-hmm. The problem was it was very unresponsive to light, very unresponsive to light. Now, you couldn't quite open it in a room with full light. It would have an effect on it. But in order to make exposures that weren't less, you know, were less than a minute. And obviously, you know, 41,000 and odd minutes is quite a lot of minutes. Yeah. So every time you can save yourself five seconds, it, it's worth your while doing. Uh-huh. Uh, so we convoluted a light with, a, with the correct spectral matching to the you film and all that sort of thing. the light. And uh, modest filtered it down, but it it ended up twice as bright as the sun. What? (laughs) He had to put on sunglasses to to operate the equipment. (laughs) There's at least three moments during this conversation where I've gone, what? It was twice as bright as As the the sun. sun. Yeah. So, and the fo- done on that invention. It had to be twice as bright as the sun, but also cold because don't forget we have film here that. It's highly combustible. So it, it was cold. And every so yeah. often in the middle of this, you take out a bunch of negatives and you would get, you'd know there was a lot of fumes around. Mm-hmm. So I'd turn off the light, the heat source in effect uh-huh. uh, and leave it just to dissipate for a while because you didn't want too much of that around. So I, and apologies now for me not remembering the exact number, which say 41,000... 632. Fair play, David. So, <laughs> 41,632 negatives mm-hmm. were copied, Duplic- duplicated. duplicated yeah. and, and, and and catalogued at the same time. And catalogued. And that another half, another, the half that wasn't, uh, this is the half that was nitrate was done a second time. 
So it was actually 64,000 negatives, duplicate uh, negatives made in the end. And where, where is that uh, stored now? Where is that? Well, if you imagine the originals are not really very usable. Mm-hmm. They are in very interesting packages with Father Brown's writing on them, etc. because mm-hmm. he annotated pretty much what most of them are. Now, there's yeah. errors in some of them because not everybody remembers on the road from Cork to Kerry mm-hmm. exactly what every village name is. You can get things wrong. Um, we negotiated after that a marketing deal to look after the collection because the owners of the collection were priests yeah. by profession. We at least were in the business of making prints mm-hmm. uh, and they liked the fact that we were very keen on making very good quality prints and a print that would have been the appropriate print type to a Father Brown image, etc. So literally for the last, I suppose, what is it, must be 30 years or something. Yeah. That's what we've been doing. Uh, so we look first, we those original set of negatives were our masters that we worked from. Of course. Subsequently, we have now digitised all of them awesome. again. And if people want to Suckers view these... Suckers for punishment, I have to say. <laughs> I know, I was going to say. If people want to view these then, where can they go? Well, they are all searchable and viewable online at fatherbrown.com, spelt F-A-T-H-E-R-B-R-O-W-N-E.com. And if they wanted to see prints of these, actual real-life tangible prints, where would they go for these then? Well, you can see a few of them in the National Gallery at the moment. Oh, I know that place. (laughs) (laughs) We have some on display and then we would have at any time, obviously, people can make appointments to come to our um, Prints and Drawings archive, which is where they're stored as well. And where else then do they feature? Well, Emo Court has a a small exhibition of his work. So he lived there for 30 years. That was his base. Um, The other place there are, yeah, in the Lockes Castle Hotel has a large selection uh, as of last summer, I think it was. Um, that's currently really where they're all on display, apart from the Titanics, which are sort of a separate section. In anything to do with Titanic, you will find Father around Titanic pictures. Of course. So, so, and I mean, I've been to Titanic Belfast, and um, assumedly then quite a number of the photographs that you're looking at, and even where they've kind of represented the interiors and everything would be based on some of his photographs. Uh, absolutely. And I mean, in, the, in the fabled James Cameron movie, lots of the scenes that are enacted are enacted from Father around pictures. Which is incredible. There's the Dunk mm. Spedden pictures, which is a man with a big with a big cigar standing at one side and a child playing with a spinning top, yeah. and a person, another person looking on. That was reproduced in the film, even to the extent of having the folding chair with the appropriate coat folded correctly on it in the film. And so it's taken it was exactly very from much Father Brown. Absolutely, mm-hmm. Father Brown. Do you feel that uh, Father Brown is? perhaps say the most significant contribution to photography in Ireland? Well, in the first 50 years of of the last century, yes. I mean, Ireland is greatly overlooked. Ireland has always produced some quite outstanding photographers uh, in in all the centuries that it has existed. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, But as far as the 20th century is concerned, Father Brown... Is, is really a towering giant. Uh, he, he, f- he photographed everything. He photographed the, the life and industry of Ireland, not just a segment. There have been other people who have done some great work, but they do this bit or that bit. Mm-hmm. Father Brown did everything from photographing the, 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 lo- the local traveller in a, in a bender or something, or the local lord. He, having been, he been in the Irish Guards as a chaplain, he knew all the, the toffs, if you like. 
and he could he could go anywhere and he did he he was in his eyes i don't believe there was anything like class it didn't exist uh-huh. everybody was a person and that's perhaps if you've been in the trenches of the first world war for years you take a rather special view on people mm-hmm. and on the value of human life and on the individual character of people and that comes out in this photography and that's that's the wonderful thing you get a you you feel how he was because you see in his pictures what he draws from people. Unbelievable, this man with a big black suit, tall guy, black hat, and little children found him a delight. Adults found him, everybody, there was no gap between them. Yeah, great charisma. Very strange. None of us ever met him, but we know. But how wonderful then, I have to say, because we have to bring it to a close, because we could absolutely do a whole series just on the two of you and your experiences. But how wonderful that Father Brown's work made it into your hands then, because I really see that as a continuation and how fantastic that it isn't sitting in a box with nobody knowing about it, potentially going on fire (laughs) or like ticking time bombs, but that it has been catalogued and preserved and conserved and that people can continue to learn from it, but also enjoy it. And I would say like that's a fantastic result in something and hopefully that it continues on now. And even though we've discussed very much photography in the pre-digital era, as you say, not only has that been duplicate in terms of uh, photographic process, but it's digitised now. So it brings it there for next generation also. David and Edwin, I cannot thank you much. Uh, It's just been an incredible opportunity to sit and chat with you and any opportunities we've had for chat have been fantastic. Thank you so much for contributing to this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to the National Gallery of Ireland podcast. This series, inspired by photography, is produced by Andrew Mangan at Castaway Media. Subscribe to our podcast at iTunes or SoundCloud or visit nationalgallery.ie.